Welcome to They Live By Film, a film discussion podcast focusing on the Criterion channel and beyond. My name is Adam Lundy and I'm joined as always by my co-hosts Zach Bryant and Chris Haskell. How are you doing today, guys? Good, how are you? Uh, awesome, awesome as usual. I've, I'm quite tired. I, was, I stayed up till half past three on Thursday night watching the NFL draft just to see the Oakland Raiders reach once again. And the then Las went to Vegas bed. Raiders. Don't oh, yeah. The Las Vegas <laughs> Raiders, yes. See them reach once again and then go to bed angry at half three in the morning. Um, so I've been sort of, I've been, I've been living off that tiredness were, ever since. Were you a fan when Al Davis was the owner? Because you probably would have been more disappointed. <laughs> he, he, the man, he'll just pick them if they're fast. That's <laughs> way. He loves the speed. Yeah, fastest guy, fastest guy will pick him. He if can he catch the ball? Who gives a shit? He's fast. <laughs> That's what percentage of Ireland is up at past midnight watching the NFL draft? Higher than you would think. It's been getting really popular the last few years. As much as it pains me to say it, it's the Patriots have really helped with that because obviously New England Irish. would have a very high Irish connection. So a lot of people would have you know either traveled to Boston or know people from Boston and then became Patriots fans through there and because obviously the Patriots are sort of a huge commercial thing it sort of grew from there so it's gotten really in the last sort of five six years it's gotten really really popular um I don't know who who would have stayed up to watch the entire thing because I, I doubt like it was only halfway through and it was half three in the morning when I was going to bed and it was only halfway through um the first round so I don't know who would have stayed up for the entire thing but I'd say there was a decent number watching well, before we came in, I was going to say that this was the um, cross-country road trip edition of the podcast. Yeah. Exactly. That's, that's me again. Uh, what uh, What's going on? How you doing? Uh, pretty good. I finally got some rest. I was telling Adam before you got on, I got to sleep in a bed after spending several nights on the ground. So it was nice to, to sleep on my mattress. <laughs> what uh, uh, did y'all bring, like, go camping, I guess? Is that why? Yeah, um, for most nights. I did stay in a hostel in Las Vegas. Um, we stayed at, you know, if if it got bad enough, we were just like, we're going to stay the night in a hotel. Like when we were in uh, Lake Tahoe, near where the Donner Party ate each other up, we stayed in a hotel. Seemed like <laughs> the best thing to do. Um, and, and beyond that, yeah, we, we were Oregon and stuff. We'd like to camp near the beach and stuff like that. So it was fun. Hadn't camped since I was a Boy Scout, so it was it was exciting to try to figure out how to put a tent up again. That's awesome. Cool. So uh, we'll crack straight into it then. So uh, the first film we're going to be talking about this week uh, was one that we watched a couple of weeks ago. It's a 1964 Japanese new wave film uh, from Hiroshi Teshigahara, which I didn't rehearse. That's the first time I've ever tried to say the name, I promise. Um, <laughs> This was a, a really interesting film. It was a kind of a one of a landslide winners uh, for one of our polls. Um, a lot of people seemed to really like this film, and a lot of people recommended it. I'd seen it mentioned a lot on the Criterion subreddit before this, as in terms of like a recommended film. Uh, for those who haven't seen it, really brief um, description from IMDb reads, uh, an entomologist on vacation is trapped by local villagers into living with a woman whose life task is shoveling sand for them. Uh, yeah, that's, that's pretty much the most basic way you can talk about this film. Literally, uh, this guy in the desert 
misses the, misses the last bus home back to civilization. These local villagers say, here, come stay in with, with this uh, woman. She lives in a sand pit. You can go stay with her. He gets dropped into the pit and he's not allowed back out again. And he has to do this task of shoveling sand out of the pit to try and basically try and keep the house um, from basically getting taken in by the sand dunes, basically. Um, but yeah, the film is a lot more wilder than that. I don't know if you guys have any initial thoughts you want to jump out with. Um, I, I guess I can start. Um, so I want to start with the, with the negative first. Um, <laughs> here's my here's my great nitpick as someone who grew up in a mining community. Uh, their plan is dumb. Uh, they really <laughs> should be getting like trucks down there. If they need this sand, it's like putting a coal miner in a hole and saying, well, we'll fill up the train eventually. I just think it's a bad plan. I think they should have worked harder on it. I don't care if it's parable. Give me some realism. <laughs> but, I was going to uh, say, I don't think it's really about getting the sand <laughs> specifically from there. There's plenty of sand dunes around. Um. <laughs> but in all seriousness, no, I, I had a, I, I really liked it. It was, uh, it was enjoyable. I'm not going to have anything probably too hard in depth, but um, you know, it's this, um, God, I'm trying to think of the Greek town now. Sisyphus, uh, yes, Sisyphus. The yeah, whole yeah. idea of this, the story of Sisyphus, rolling, yeah. you know, doing the same thing every day, has this feeling of, you know, what the working class kind of goes through. Do you do you live to work or do you work to live? Sort of idea. Um, really enjoyed it. Um, what about you guys? Yeah. Do y'all think it was um, about? Uh, you know, there, there's obviously this is a metaphor or a parable or there's an allegory here somewhere, right, on the way. Do you think it's about um, the uh, the way, like you just said, Zach, that's an interesting idea, the concept of like maybe, you know, the working class. There's another angle I was thinking of as I was kind of going through this around the possibility of like looking at identity because he had his kind of identity stripped throughout the movie. Um, I was just curious to hear what y'all thought. Before we get into that, I'll just say really quick, I think this is one of those movies that like I can't watch every weekend or something. It's not like a light kind of fun watch. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Uh, it's, I loved it. I mean, yeah, I think it's a movie everybody should see. You know, it's one of those, those stories that I hope gets passed along. Um, uh, but anyways, yeah, that's what kind of what I wanted to dig in with you all today a little bit is around what is this, what is the allegory actually trying to get at? Well, I, I included a quote in my review because it was a quote that jumped out at me while watching the film and I actually paused it to, to write it down to make sure I wouldn't forget it. And it's, uh, here we are ruthlessly exploited yet happily wagging our tails. And this is this is a, a point about halfway through the film when uh, Junpai, the character who has been captured, is basically sort of giving out about the whole situation with the woman in the dunes, um, saying that essentially he's being made to work, uh, do this monotonous, almost pointless job, um, just for, for, for little to no gratification. He doesn't get paid. He doesn't get anything. Um, so I, I definitely could see it as that a... Um, uh, like the the Japanese New Wave is obviously something it was a period of cinema that really looked at Japanese culture at that time and really put a lens on it. Um, as we saw with one of the other films we watched, um, Death by Hanging, which was obviously looked more at the whole idea of the death penalty and mm -hmm. the looking back sort of with guilt at the um, at the coloni colonization era that Japan had earlier in its history. And this one seems to look more so at the idea of the, the working class being this um, exploited class and 
uh, trying to think of the right word now, but uh, expendable, being being expendable. This guy could just be taken. Nobody's going to look for him. Nobody's going to find him. Nobody's going to care. He can just be taken and made to work till death, and that's it. Simple. Um, and I think that film really looked at that. Um, but yeah, one thing that that really jumped out at me about this film more so than the than the metaphors and and things like that is just the direction it was phenomenal. Every shot was really incredibly planned. Like I said, that the way this, the way he shot sand was just amazing. Sand is probably the most easy thing to shoot boringly because mm-hmm. it's just yeah. fricking sand. Right. He did it completely opposite. He shot it like it was an ocean, like it was moving, like it was an organism. The direction, I, I really can't say anything higher about the direction of this film. It was phenomenal. Yeah, that's interesting. I, th- there's like, I like the, because there's, there's even moments in the movie where it's almost as if the sand becomes waves, right? Yeah, for sure. Absolutely. And he even has a quote at one point where it's like, uh, I think he pretty much talks about that, like building a house on water. And I think he equates it to that instead of having, like, it was like something like, uh, why build a house on water when a boat would have done better or some idea of that? Yeah, I think there was, I think I remember that quote, something along those lines. So there was a, there was a sense of um, desire from, from the characters to get to the coast, right? Because they were basically coming up to a river, right? So there was a little bit, or an ocean or something. So there was a bit of a natural kind of tie-in between the sand and the water, but I've never really thought about it till you just said that. Um, I, don't, I don't know if the water represented freedom or not, but it, it, does, it does seem like there's a tie-in here between like kind of the desperate dryness and like, you know, desperation of the sand and then that water which is so close um and something that he that he desperately needed throughout the film as well water is a, is a resource that he didn't mm-hmm. have easy access to he was just given a pail of it you know i think they said something like every few days or once a week they were given this massive pail of water so he was given essentially a taste of freedom by being allowed to have that necessity and um, you were talking about uh, identity and that's kind of Without spoiling, that kind of becomes a part of his identity towards the later part of the film. Yeah, yeah. yeah well, just on that point, so you're ta- this. This kind of ties together some of the stuff we've been talking about so far for me. So, Adam, you're talking about um, uh, this idea of like the working class and maybe like you know how they were treated, and maybe this is a commentary on that. And then you know the moment where it switches for our our friend here um, is when he takes ownership of. Uh, being able to produce water, right? Mm-hmm. And from that moment on, he he kind of shifts towards wanting to escape um, to all of a sudden, like, thinking differently about his, his relationship to that house. And, and like, I, I don't know, are we talking about spoilers or not? I'm trying to, th- I'm trying to be careful here. I think maybe we'll just say, we'll, we'll, we'll say maybe towards the end, we'll do a spoiler warning section and say... Okay. Then I'll just say, like, as as he becomes as he becomes more invested in the process, his perspective of where he's at in relationship to this, uh, you know, kind of prison changes, right? And he starts to take ownership of it a little bit more. And I think that's a really interesting um, change that that happens a lot in workplaces where they like they give you a project or they give you something, and they're like, you know, you, you take ownership of it, and then it's harder to leave, even if the conditions are bad. 
Well, you know, I'm going to kind of tie this in just because I live in the Appalachians. Cole, Cole is big here. I mentioned that before. Yeah. But one of the things they would do a lot here, and you'll still see like them as, as museums, but the sense of working, the way you they kept control of these workers was essentially to not pay them, but to make them feel like they're getting paid. They'd get different types of currency they could spend at that store. It wouldn't be good anywhere else, but it was good at the coal mine store. So that's where you'd buy your milk because you weren't getting paid anything else. So almost like giving them the this house to keep up is a similar concept. Like this is all they have. And, yeah. it's, you know, you'll keep them going as long as they have that. And that is the only hope they can have is something that's just so small and something they should just have anyway. Dude, that's super interesting. I want to have a whole other podcast just asking you questions about what you just said. Um, but basically you're saying that there is a, we don't know what it is until we're in this situation, but there's a minimum level of like ownership or agency that we need in order to kind of like keep going on something, even if it's putting us in a bad spot. And you've seen, I mean, you know, you look at the, like, you know, you talk about coal miners, you know, they go on strike and stuff and eventually their strikes finally work to get them actual American currency. But yeah, I mean, they set them in this hole by just, giving them these needs like oh you need milk well you can buy it with these uh four four coal bucks we have here wow that you worked forever for um just so you can feed your family and you can keep a house over their head interesting that, not something i'd ever heard of before obviously not why would i have heard of uh virginia history in irish school but <laughs> yeah may not be a very uh, popular topic <laughs> yeah no uh, but yeah that, that's that's intriguing especially how it ties in here because you know giving him the water and giving him this purpose of trying to you know make you know create water himself is um it's kind of giving him it like we were saying but maybe the taste of freedom he's kind of creating his own freedom with the water um and i suppose when you talk about maybe water representing freedom in the film there's an interesting part that happens where he does uh, manage to briefly escape, but ends up running into quicksand, mm-hmm. which obviously is kind of like a really a mix between the two. And he he, he theoretically almost drowns uh, in, in, in the quicksand until he's sort of rescued by the captors and, and put back in the hole again. And that's kind of a real turning point for him as a character. He, he doesn't try to escape again because he, by by nearly escaping, he maybe we could say he almost got too much freedom and ended up drowning. And now he has his purpose. He's going to stay in there. And he, as he tries to bargain with with the captors, instead saying, "Just let me out, just to see the ocean once a week or something," he 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 just wants that small taste of freedom. I wonder if there's a few tie. When was this movie made in relationship to Brazil? This was made in sixty four. Before Brazil, okay. Oh, yeah, because so. yeah. this idea kind of shows up in Brazil as well, right? Around like what what are the things that people need to feel like they have like a little escapism from this crazy world that's being built around them? It's been a long time since I've seen Brazil. Um, I have not seen years. it. It's been on my list. No, no, no. Anyways, I, th- yeah, there's just this, this idea that this future has been created um, and, and, and they're out of control and, and there's a you know, uh, something they want to escape to, right? Is the main, the main character in that movie has something that he wants to escape to. Um, it's interesting how, like, it's almost like, I don't want to get too deep into this, like, because I, I don't, I can't really back it up with evidence from women in the dunes, but like, it's almost as if we're saying like, 
there's a there's a physical prison they're in with the sand and the house where it is and like in location. But then there's also kind of like a mental prison that that they're forcing them into. And like, you know, once they're there, they're they're like their identities almost changed a little bit to where they in order to find happiness, they like adapt quickly to this new surroundings and like just need little tastes of things that they took for granted before. Uh, and, and like how quickly, you, sh you know, we shift as humans into like the things we need in order to stay sane and kind of, you know, um, feeling somewhat in control of our lives. Cause it, like he would have, before he got in there in the pit, he never would have said that like, I just need to see water once a week. Or, you know, he was like, he had his career, he had his, he had his family, he had, like he had all these things that were important to him. And once those got stripped away, it's like he quickly changed and, you know, and, and had like a new version of what that was. that was important to him. Well, what I think is really interesting with their dynamic with the man and the woman is even though he doesn't ever expect to have to say that, he looks at that every day. He has seen what acceptance looks like and what complacency and all this. He he sees it every single day. And I, there's almost like this. Re of course, there's this resistance to that until eventually it's, you know, it's almost an attempt to break who he is. It's to break him down and to be, in a, you know, just being a worker, being who she is, you know, she's, she's just wants the little things in life to make it a little bit easier. So in the thread that we've been talking about, then who do the villagers represent? Because they're not like well put together, organized, smart people. They're not represented that way. I, I would say they're representative of the like upper management or, you know, like corporations who are a lot of corporations, despite them making a lot of money, are horrifically mismanaged. Um, and The decision makers. Essentially. Yeah, yeah, essentially. Yeah. Um, uh, like if we're going to go with this idea of Jumpai being forced into work, he doesn't really want to do or care about uh, to the point where he is essentially being exploited, which all across the world that happens um cough cough certain warehouses for certain big corporations um check our amazon affiliate link down below <laughs> he said it not me don't block my amazon account. um <laughs> uh, yeah but like it's it's something that still happens and obviously it's been happening for for thousands of years man will exploit the weaker man if he can that's just human nature you know you, you see it in a million different films and books and series and everything um if the people in power will even the smallest amount of power they will abuse it as much as they can that's it's just human nature well and there's also this element like of course before we see you know i'm sure same we're going to talk about here in a little bit but the same where we just have the few guys who take them down to the hole you know they're just like they're kind of, you know there's almost like this deception there of just saying ah oh, it's it's going to be nice. You're going to do this. And it's almost like the people they're who human, hire you. They're human later, resource. Yeah, yeah. They're human resource guys. Yeah. And then later <laughs> you see the true face of the corporation, you know, the guys with the mask, you have this nightmarish thing and it's all just right there in the yeah. open. And this is the point where you've accepted, well, I'm stuck here. I mean, there's the, you know, the same thing when you have a dead end job, I'm stuck here. I've seen what this place really is, but what am I gonna do about it? What am I gonna do? I might as well get my little kicks here and yeah. there. But for him, it's which for the main which Jumpai is trying to sort of make his own water source. That's his little kick. That's what he gets out of having to sort of be stuck doing this monotonous job. Oh, that he is... feels like means everything to him. Like he wanted a yeah. legacy, and this is this is his legacy for him. Um, this small little victory. 
they've, they've, they've effectively broken him down to see the world differently to where this is the thing that's important now. Yeah. <clears throat> like he moves away from bugs entirely. Right. And it becomes like something else entirely, even though that oh, was, yeah. Yeah. Well, he becomes a bug essentially. He becomes the bug that he himself was capturing. Obviously, the very start of the film shows him capturing a bug, putting him in a in a glass, and just watching it to see what it does. And he essentially becomes that himself, trapped, mm-hmm. having people observe him. That was a good quote, Adam. I got chills. That's exactly right. He became a bug. That's the quote of the podcast right there. Um, <laughs> so you're saying that Amazon, when they hire people for the warehouse, on the job description, they don't put you're going to have to pee in a bottle. It's because you don't. <laughs> I, I respect the hell out of them if they actually put that in the job description. <laughs> they were just like, on hey, it. We told you. They were just on it. Yeah, it's like it was in your contract. You know, you signed up for this kind of thing. It's interesting. Yeah, that's so true. Because even like, okay, man, I don't want to get too far off on a tangent. I, I, I promise you, I'm trying super hard here. There's a whole thread. <laughs> but like, there's even been evidence that there's still child labor, like in 2021, that goes into like one piece of one thing that goes into an iPhone, right? It's not like Apple's hiring children, but it's like one of the components that's needed to make it run the way that it runs is mined somewhere in Africa with children, right? And like, even with that knowledge, like it doesn't stop production of the iPhone, which, you know, it's, or, or, or by the way, I don't mean to pick on Apple or Samsung or Google phone, whatever. Like it's, a, it's an important part of like cell phones. And like, in theory, like that should just stop. <laughs> like it's not like it's not like a big like human rights advocate to be like, oh no, we we don't want to hire children anymore. That's right. Like I forgot. <laughs> but then it, I get, and then but what we hear is, oh, it's going to cost three or four thousand dollars to have that phone if we stop that. Ooh, that's that might be a little too high because that's and that's how people justify it. like, oh. Well, It'll make a four thousand dollar phone. Oh, you want adults doing the work? Oh, yeah, yeah. It's gonna raise your phone up by a thousand dollars. Like, sorry, it's not, yeah. Um, so we don't. There's well, anyways, yeah. There's a whole other discussion around like how we're disconnected from the supply chain and how that doesn't inform our purchases. We don't have to get into that. But for the for the purposes of this, like, I have not really thought about it strictly just as a metaphor for work before. But I love the way this conversation, like, where we went with this. I think this is exactly right. Yeah, I think it's still like. I'm sure you could probably, like with, with a lot of films, especially art films like this, you could probably put it into a lot of different holes, pun not intended. Um, but you, you could do that. But I think the workforce idea, especially with the quote that I said, that, that Jump Pie says yeah. himself, here we are ruthlessly exploited yet happily wagging our tails. It's so true. Like it, it rings true to any, any, any person who's ever worked in an office job or anything really or like even like working in like a supermarket anything like that where you are directly under the thumb of someone else having to do something that you obviously don't love you're you're gonna this film is gonna kind of um ingratiate itself to you if you if you get the metaphor we're talking like it's a very easy metaphor to to pick up and go sitting there going yeah this is all about uh exploiting workers and everything like that we we obviously had to have a 20 minute conversation to land at that point so um, but if you do pick up on that this film will ingratiate itself to you Uh, before we talk about the ending just one shout out I want to give out really quickly to this film was its soundtrack Um, loved loved horror movie soundtrack yeah yes I love the score this atonal smacks and crashes of just noise it just really helped create an atmosphere and 
if you can get one thing right with your film is make sure it has a good atmosphere you could have a crap plot you could have bad actors but if you get the atmosphere right then the film is almost always gonna at least be good maybe not a masterpiece but it's always gonna at least be good if you can get the atmosphere right and the music the, the music in this film like if i can really even call it music because it was literally just atonal hits of noise but um brilliant it really set the mood for the film so um this guy's name is Toro Takemitsu. I just I'm looking him up right now. I don't know I, I don't know this, but before right now I'm just looking him up. But um, Adam, how was the music in Black Rain? Do you remember? Oh gosh, that's a great question. I assume you're asking me because he did the score for Black Rain. No, I'm just just curious uh, separately from that. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Oh, okay. Um, no, he did. He did. He did. He did. <laughs> okay, I, I genuinely can't recall off the top of my head. But I would be, I would not be surprised if it was somewhat similar to this. Okay. Well, yeah, because he also did Ron, which has a lot of very much like like Kurosawa's Ron, which is very minimalist. Yeah. And he, and he did the documentary Antonio Gaudi, which do y'all, have you all seen that? It's really awesome. Anyways, oh, I'm not similar, very very uh, minimalist soundtrack. So he seems to be like, and he oh, did Empire Way Down as well, which yeah. does very minimalist soundtrack. He did a lot of great films. Harakiri as well from yeah. Kobayashi. He worked with Kobayashi and a lot by the looks of it. Yeah, this guy did a lot of good scores. Um, this maybe, dude has worked yeah. with pretty This dude has worked with some of the greatest Japanese directors ever. So you have Teshika Hara, Masaki Kobayashi, yeah. Mishiro Shinoda, yeah. and Kurosawa and Oshima. This dude worked with some of, some of the great directors that were working in that era. He's obviously very highly thought of, which he should the be. The John Williams of Japan. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe the Philip Glass. <laughs> yeah, Philip Glass. Yeah, probably Philip Glass is more in line with, with what he's doing, or Johnny Greenwood or something. Uh, <laughs> it's more in line with what this guy makes. But uh, yeah, I, I love the score. Um I suppose we might as well jump into the ending then. So spoiler warning for anyone watch, listening who hasn't seen the film and doesn't want to be spoiled. So if you want to maybe skip ahead a couple of minutes. So the ending of the film, this is, this is one part of the film I didn't, well, at the very, very end I loved. The sort of lead up to it, I didn't love because it kind of just, it had a time jump that wasn't very obvious and it just kind of mm -hmm. came out of nowhere. So... The woman in the dunes whose name I completely forget if she's even named. I don't think she's named. Okay, yeah. thank that that makes me feel like less of a sexist dick that I remember the guy's name and not the woman's name. Um so <laughs> obviously she falls pregnant and ends up having some sort of complication. So they have to go in and rescue her and bring her to like the village doctor or something like that. Mm -hmm. And Jumpai stays. He 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 could have left. If I remember correctly, they don't even pull the rope up at the end. They don't. He, he stays in the. He stays there. So, yeah. and then we see there's a, a news, like a sort of newsreel, basically telling him, telling us the audience. And I don't know if this was actually obvious in the in the Criterion version of this because I don't know if there were subtitles for it at all. I had to look it up afterwards to say exactly what it said. But essentially, he's been missing for seven years. So. One thing the film does is not make obvious how long Jumpai has been in the pit. There's no, obviously, like, 
title card saying seven years later or whatever. It's not very obvious how long he's been there. Um, but the fact that he's been missing for seven years and that the film kind of ends on that strange note. Um, what, did you guys like the ending? How did you feel? You know, I, I kind of like that element of it because just because like when you're down there, he probably doesn't have any real sense of time, you know, That's like true. if you if I had sat there and, you know, they didn't say that, I would assume it's been several months, maybe a year. Yeah. And then when it says seven, you really, it almost like hits you like, ah, that's, that's awful that it's been that long. And it's, you know, it broke him down. I mean, at the end, it really did. Um, It kind of reminded me a lot, you know, he had the opportunity to leave. It's kind of like how uh, wardens at uh, prisons will talk about uh, when they take them to the chair or take them to the lethal injection table, they don't put them there. They walk there Mm. on their own volition. They'll sit, they'll get, they'll strap themselves in and be ready. And, it's almost like that type of brokenness and how long that really takes. I was, I was thinking of it like war vets who (laughs) have trouble acclimatizing back to civilian life once they come back from tour. And a lot of them just end up going back because they're just so used to it. Yeah. Yeah. They're just so they, they just can't acclimatize to normal everyday civilian life. Um, from that sort of uh, angle as well. That's so true. There's an interesting, just stick with this um, uh, theme of the of work and kind of how this is relating to work. You know, that's a common thing to say. You can be like, oh man, I can't believe I've been here for seven years. You know, where, where's the time gone? Or like, yeah, you know, just this idea of being like, you hate the job, but all of a sudden like four years go by, you know, and you're just like, oh man, what am I doing with my life? <laughs> um, so I'll put in that application for somewhere else tomorrow. And that's kind of what he does at the end. Yeah. I'll, I'll worry about escape tomorrow. Yeah. Yeah. But for now, I'll just try to fill up that that concoction that I built that allows me to get water anytime I want. Like it's like yeah. the what is that whole thing the the Maslow's hierarchy of needs? Like he's he's figured out a way to get his base needs met, right? Yeah. Um, which in this case is water, and I guess I don't know what he's doing for food. I guess they still bring him food down. They still drop food down. Yeah, because I was waiting on the crow, and I guess eventually, I guess if he's down there long enough, he'll figure out a way for the crow too. But you know, um, or try to get some type of food. But you know, that's down the line and that's just his next project just like at work you know you, you always feel awkward leaving a job because you're like well i'm in the middle of something let yeah. me finish this up and then i'll leave this has me so depressed now for, <laughs> for dead people with dead end jobs <laughs> that's true though it's it, it really rings true um to like on like dead end jobs office jobs that kind of stuff not every office job is a dead end job but right. you know you know the type um, yeah. where, where you know you're not really gonna go anywhere you're just a, a a very very small cog in a in a massive massive machine and uh you're you're sort of left to feel like that as well I, i'm not surprised this is apparently in uh uh tarkovsky's uh, top 10 films especially after talking about this that doesn't surprise me now yeah yeah, I suppose it is sort of shot meditative, meditatively, meditative. Yeah, you know what I, I think mean. That's the word. It is shot like that, um, like a lot of Tarkovsky films are too. Um, Tarkovsky would have started his career around this time. When was Ivan Childhood made? Nineteen sixty-two. This is two years after uh, Tarkovsky's first feature film. Um, if I remember correctly, I'm pretty sure Ivan's Childhood was. Um, was Tarkovsky's first, uh, which is probably the sort of least arty of his films. So mm. I'm sure he probably took, uh, you know, took influence from from the way this film was shot into his his own style. Yeah, 
19, yeah, there's at least his first big one. There's looks like there was a, is this a short? There's something called Steamroller in the Violin. I've actually never heard of yeah, it. Yeah, I think that's a short film. Um, yeah, it was a short it was part of it when he was in um, the, the Russian Film Academy, whatever that's called. Um, I can't remember. Yeah, 1962, and then Andre Rublev, uh, Andre Rublev is four, two years after this one, which was where he sort of started developing his long, yeah, sort of um, slow cinema. Um, so yeah, I could probably see this being a direct influence. Um, I enjoyed this film more than I enjoy Tarkovsky movies. I'm not a huge Tarkovsky guy. Mm-hmm. It's a bit too slow for my liking. Um, so yeah, the our... pace of this stayed pretty consistent. Like I yeah. never felt slowed down. Oh yeah, hundred percent. Like I, I, I said it to um, some guys in the Discord who were kind of obviously this film was what two and a half hour, hundred and forty six minutes long. Yeah, and there were some people in the Discord along with myself who were kind of worried about the length because you know it's especially the way we do it where we have to watch the film and you have to kind of choose which day you want to watch it before the week is up, and it can be hard to fit that kind of film into your work day uh, life. So. I was kind of worried, and then I watched it pretty much the day after it got chosen, and I said, guys, this film is so well-paced. It doesn't feel slow. Yeah. It's not like we're sitting down to watch Satin Tango here. We can, you know, it's it, it, it sort of, even though it could be, it couldn't be as far opposite as Once Upon a Time in the West, I feel like from a pacing point of view, even though, obviously, one's sort of more action-y than the other. Um, I, I felt no issues with the pacing in this film. I thought it was really well-paced. Yeah. Yeah. Any final points before we move on, then? Anyone want to bring up anything in particular? No. Uh, there's a, there's just just in, like, a consistent theme in the, in the podcast, just, like, closing loops, the open loops from the podcast. So y'all were trying to figure out the name of a... Uh, a soundtrack where all the music comes from within the movie. Oh yes, yes. Uh, a few weeks back, is it diegetic? Diegetic, yes. Is that Because oh, okay. I'm sure our listeners have been like frantically trying to search for that now. So I thought I would close the loop. <laughs> yeah, because I was trying. I can't now. I can't remember what the other one's called. The one where it's not from there. Uh, it starts with an A. But oh well, that'll that'll be for next week when I realize what that word is. I'll look yeah. up. Diegetic yeah. antonym. Antonym. Um, Antonym, yeah, it's like the opposite of a. Oh, you're just taking it. Uh, um, non-diegetic, apparently. <laughs> okay, well, maybe I, maybe I, I'm thinking of something else, but yeah, that'll work. We'll say non-diegetic, so I'll feel better. Yeah. In the in the Discord, we were chatting about these Dogma '95 films that were left from like Bunchier and. Uh, um, oh yeah. And that's a big deal in the in the Dogma movement was this the, the music had to come from within the the scenes. There could be no you know soundtrack or anything. So, anyways, yeah. I. I they were a bit too harsh on themselves. Those guys, they, just, they gave themselves nothing to work with. I don't really, I, I never, I never really took to that movement. You know, just like, what's the point? Just make the film you want to make. Why do you have to stick to all these rules? You know, you're just sort of limiting yourself for no real good reason other than saying, oh, my film is the most dogma. Your film did this, so it can't be dogma. It's just <laughs> like, who gives a shit? Like, it's the worst the one up. Yeah, it's so crap. It's the worst one up. Oh, oh, you used you used uh, stage lighting for one scene. No. You're not dogma. Go away. You know, <laughs> just fuck off. Just make the film you want to make. You know. <laughs> so that's why Barry Lyndon was shot the way it was. No stage lighting for that. Kubrick <laughs> just really wanted Von Trier to love his film, so yeah. <laughs> he was just obsessed with making what, well, who was probably a very young Lars Von Trier, happy. 
He just knew. He saw him as a baby. He's like, I I have to impress him. I have to impress this dude. You know, this (laughs) got to do it. That's that's why he acted like Hitler on his sets as well, because he just knew that Von Trier would take to that. (laughs) It's all all coming together. Jigsaw falling into place. All right. Welcome back to Collection Corner. Um, in, In what seems to kind of accidentally be a reoccurring theme now. We have another special guest this week, which we're very excited about. Um, For anybody who's on Reddit, uh, and specifically on the Criterion sub, we were able to find time with one of the mods, uh, who goes by the name Captain Gibb. And oh, Captain, our Captain is a a fierce collector of, of all films, but has a particular knowledge and expertise around kind of silent cinema, and uh, really, even a level beyond that, really getting into some some specific niches uh, and subgenres within the, the the very vast world of silent films. And so I think this interview for me was was fascinating. It was really eye opening to think of the fact that the the most diverse time in history for filmmakers was actually in the silent era, and we've just gone backwards since then. Um, I think Captain Gibb brings a lot of experience and uh, and, and knowledge and wisdom into this conversation and. I learned a lot, and it made me. Uh, I have now uh, two movies from Flickr Alley based off of uh, the recommendations he gave, and and I think that uh, y'all are gonna learn a lot as well. So here, without any more of me talking, here's here's uh, Captain Gibb. So Captain Gibb, thanks for joining us. Uh, I reached out to you just through the comment section. I think sometimes over the past few years because I noticed a trend that you had a particular interest in silent film in which you let me know that it was even further refined into like women Soviet filmmakers, but pulling back Soviet, you know, silent films for sure. Uh, I have two real questions just kind of out of the gate. You know, first of all, how did you, like what was your path from being a 10 year old that knew nothing about film or whatever age that was to then discovering like a love of film and then getting into silent films? Cause that's not completely typical. Uh, although I think it's awesome. And then, uh, you know, and then also uh, you're, you know, we'll, we'll get into more of the collecting side in, in a moment, but I'm just curious as to, you know, you think the role of preservation and kind of, you know, the, the importance of collecting silent film now, physical media, but, but I love to hear that journey from you because that's, that's an awesome, I'm sure there's a story there. Yeah, thanks. Yeah. So growing up, I always watched movies with my family. Every week we'd have like pizza and a movie on Saturday night. So I grew up watching, you know, the normal films like Lord of the Rings, Indiana Jones, you know, those movies I grew up watching. And then it wasn't until about high school, actually, that I started getting to film a little more seriously. I took in like an AP English course and the teacher actually had us watch some films in that class. It was Hitchcock specifically that we watched. And he's actually the person who I first heard about Criterion from. We're talking about Guillermo del Toro and his films and their availability. And he mentioned, um, what is it? Um, the Devil's Backbone is only released through Criterion at the time on Blu-ray. And so that's kind of the first time that Criterion name kind of like bounced around. And he introduced me to some interesting films. Um, one of them actually being Irreversible, which is an interesting film for a high school teacher to recommend. But yeah, seriously. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, he started telling us about it. And he's like, actually, maybe I shouldn't. But me and my friend kind of got it out of him. <laughs> and then I watched it and was, you know, mind blown. But yeah. And then in college, I 
started, you know, I majored in psychology and I was looking at what else the college had and I ended up minoring in film studies. And so I took a few film studies courses and then I took a women in film course. And I was expecting it to be like more of a historical look, but ended up being more of a contemporary look about like feminist issues using film as a medium to look at it. And I kind of wanted that more historical approach. So then for the final paper, I said to the professor, I'm like, hey, can I kind of, you know, pick my own research topic? And then I did a little bit of research and I found Alice Guy Blachet, who was the first female filmmaker dating back to, you know, the 1800s. And then I did a research paper on her and that kind of just opened up my world to, um, you know, the silent era and specifically the women in the silent era. So that was kind of the big segue. But actually, I realized I, I skipped a step. When I first started getting to Criterion, I watched Charlie Chaplin's The Kid. I got that from my local library. It was one of the first silent films I ever watched. I, and I, when I saw it, I was completely blown away. It was a Criterion Blu-ray and um, blown away by how like, engaged I could be in a film from, was that 1921, I think? I'm just amazed at how old that film was and how just completely engaged I was. And then from there on, I just started watching more and more silent films. And that's probably what sparked me to think about the historical approach in that woman film class. Wow. But that's cool. Yeah. yeah so I think that's pretty much the journey. Yeah. As Chris was saying, yeah, the silent film, it's not really a, an area that many people look at, especially early in their you know, in, in their sort of film journey. I think even a lot of seasoned film watchers are still kind of afraid to touch it. Like one of my one of my big things this year is I'm trying deliberately to watch more silent film. I've fallen a little bit behind. I've only watched like I think ten or eleven this year so far, but like that's definitely more than I watched last year. Um so it's it's cool that you got into it so early. I'm really interested to learn about this sign of female filmmakers because I honestly can't name any i think the earliest female filmmaker i can think of would be like riefenstahl or dorothy arzner i can't i i, I genuinely can't name any female filmmakers before that era so uh, i didn't yeah I'm not, I'm not sure how big their role was so was that more of a hollywood or would they have been based in in around there or would they be more sort of spread out in the film sort of map yeah there's actually all over had a lot of female filmmakers Okay. Actually, it's interestingly enough, during the silent era, more women worked in the film industry than any other period, including right now. Oh, wow. Which okay. is wild. And like some other, some prominent female filmmakers have written about it. And I think it was Lois Weber. Well, I meant to talk about her a little bit more later. But she, I think her comments were, since the medium was so new, everybody was just trying to figure out, you know, what the heck they were doing. And nobody started noticing that these women were taking foot. And, you know starting to become prominent figures in this industry. And um, actually that figure, Lois Weber, so in the silent era, in the US anyway, there's three big filmmakers. Everybody knows Griffith. Everybody knows, you know, Cecil B. DeMille. Mm -hmm. And then Lois Weber was actually the third giant, but nobody knows about her, which is wild to me. But do you have any theories as to why that is? Because you're saying at the time she was on mm -hmm. par with them. She was getting funding. Yep. She was completing projects. So what happened? Yeah. Even um, she, she was working at Universal, actually. Actually, Universal hosted, I think, I think they had the most female filmmakers there at the time. But 
even some people like at the time said she might, you know, she's probably the best filmmaker, regardless of, you know, she just happens to be a woman. And those are some like contemporary reports we're talking about of her. So what happened? I think a lot of it is how we know film history because women were kind of slowly written out of film history as time goes on um, for, you know, whatever reason. I don't, I'm sure there's lots of theories out there about why, but I won't get into that now. But um, at least in the very early, early years, there were never like an Elsky Blachet and these other early filmmakers. They didn't have like titles on them, like who was made in the, like who helped make the film. There was none of that. Mm. So that sense of authorship was not there. So people associated like um, Elsky Blachet, all of her films, her other contemporaries, like she was just sort of there. So it's, it's just got lost because there's no record of it, essentially. Yeah, that's yeah. part of it. There's no record. That's mostly for the earlier stuff. Right. The newer stuff is just, I don't know. I think like Weber's films are very political. Like she was very politically conscious. And I think that may have made some people uncomfortable. Mm. And she made some films about abortion, um, birth control, wow. things like that. Yeah, back in the 20s, which is wild. Wow, yeah. It's amazing pre-code, some of the stuff that came out, some of the content uh, was, was, was really interesting. Um, so one more question before we get into the collecting yeah. side of it, because you got me curious now. So, so okay, so you got into uh, women through women's history course, and then uh, was, what was the connection to Russia or Soviet films? How did that, how, how did that come oh, yeah. So that was actually um, through another film course I took. It was... Soviet and Eastern European film. Okay. And, and that was a, she was a fantastic professor. Um, she was like fluent in Russian. She studied in this back when there was the Soviet Union. Um, she was fluent in multiple languages and she really pushed me to like explore different films. And then again, for that course, I got to pick a film and do a project on it. And since I already had the interest in women filmmakers, I actually was looking at Flickr Alley's um, early women filmmakers box set. And I noticed they had a film. I'm gonna butcher her name. I'm sure my professor would cringe. It's <laughs> Olga Priobrazhenskaya. At least that's how it's written out. Um, so yeah, so I saw I saw that film. I'm like, huh, that's interesting. And then I did a whole research paper on her, and about her and about women's role in the Soviet Union at the time making films. And you kind of asked earlier about like how it looked across the map women were making films in the Soviet Union, but they were kind of stuck making like children's films because it's still like a womanly, quote unquote, womanly role to make films for children. And she's actually the first filmmaker to kind of step outside that role and make a serious drama. And that kind of, you know, helped pave the way for other female filmmakers. There's actually some interesting books about Soviet women in the silent era. One is called um, The Red Woman and the Silver Screen, I believe. Have it right up there. Something to that effect. Red Woman on the Silver Screen. And that's all about women of the silent era as well as some interviews with them. So if you're interested to read more, I'd recommend that. Yeah, I'm very interested. I mean, it, it, you know, one of the things that's coming out in, in recent years, now we're kind of cycling back to a point where we're realizing, I'm putting air quotes because this is an audio podcast, not a visual one, but I'm, you know, yeah. we're realizing that people of diverse backgrounds and genders and they, they have unique stories to tell and these stories can be really interesting and compelling right 
but that was kind of a forgotten thing for for many years there where it, it you know it looked like you had to look a certain way or be a certain you know type of uh, person to tell a story um so it's interesting that this was going on for a, for a while in the beginning of film when it was sort of the wild west and it was just kind of whoever could get funding in a camera um mm -hmm. wow so I know, but you mentioned Flickr Alley. What are some of the labels that are doing the best work at, at preserving this and, and putting them out on, on Blu-ray or, or physical discs? Yeah, so Flickr Alley is one I'm a huge fan of. I've been working actually collecting all of the releases um, just because they do amazing work. They um, are, all of their restorations come from Lobster Films. I'm not sure if any of you guys have heard of them. They do a lot of the like restorative work. They do, in the UK, they work with other labels to release some of the films they've um, restored. And they're a big one. Honestly, Kino Lorber, they get a lot of hate from people for whatever reason, but they do a lot of really wonderful work with the silent era. They probably released the most silent stuff that any other label releases. Um, and then beyond them, Milestone Films, a lot of people aren't familiar with them. What I like about them is they tend to release lesser known films about marginalized communities and marginalized filmmakers. Um, specifically in the silent era, they released two films, um, In the Land of the Headhunters and The Daughter of, the, of Dawn. Those are both films with, I believe, completely indigenous casts. And so basically telling these indigenous stories and like I said, they released both of those. They released some Lois Weber films. Um, and so they're, they do a lot of really interesting work. Um, who else? Grapevine Video. That's one I feel like most people have not heard of Grapevine oh. Video. They're really interesting because they do all the restorations themselves. They have Kickstarters. And so they have a Kickstarter. They have their own prints that they buy and restore and then release. They're all unfortunately, you know, made on demandist, so the BDRs. So I think that's what scares some people away. And honestly, the packaging is not the best. Okay. It looks like the guy you know, made the covers back in like 2002, used scissors to cut them out. Okay. But um, the discs themselves are good, but. The movies are good. Yeah. Uh, is it cl classic media? No, there's one more too that, uh, classic flicks, classic, classic movie. There's one more, the two that I've seen referenced before um, a lot. I anyways, while, I, while I'm looking for that, you know, we had, so two, two podcasts ago, we had the gentleman on who started up Fun City Editions. And that's a passion project for him. And his day job is actually working with Kino Lorber. Okay. So, so I, that's, uh, I'll make sure he gets, uh, I'll tell him that you called out specifically as being one of the best for, for silent films. I'm sure he'll be happy to hear that. Yeah. And they've honestly been releasing silent films since the VHS era. So they've been consistently restoring or releasing these films. And I, I like just to shout out one of their releases. It's called The Movies Begin. It's a DVD box. Uh, there's five discs. And it's honestly like a film history course in a box. I know that gets thrown a lot for like, a lot of people like call a criteria on that. But this is literally like film school in a box. Because they have essays that go along with each of the films. I think they call them like program notes. So you can literally like read an essay on your screen and then watch the film associated to it. Then just go through the whole box set like that and it's literally a film course wow. that's cool yeah very cool i like um i'm going to talk about a documentary now for a moment but yeah that's what reminds me of uh, mark cousins the story of film 
um, yeah. which uh, I've seen the documentary and I'm, I'm reading the book now at the moment. That's like my evening reading. Um, and that kind of brings me into obviously what you're speaking about with women filmmakers. Uh, he has a documentary series on the Criterion channel, the Women Make Film series. Mm-hmm. I don't know if you have you seen that. As I haven't seen it personally, so I'm just wondering if it if it is interesting because I'm sure it probably covers a lot of that early era too. It is, yeah. Um, I've seen the first couple episodes, I believe. I haven't finished it yet. There's cool. so much on my, you know, to watch list. Yeah. But yeah, it's good. I recommend it. Awesome. Yeah, it looks to be like quite a lot of episodes. I just have it up here beside me. I think just something like 14 episodes of it. So it seems to be, I'm sure he gets very in-depth. He's uh, he's a cool guy, Mark Cousins. I, I do appreciate him. You know, I know there's a lot of common questions that come up when people are trying to get into film, right? Typically in that kind of 14 to 17 year age, like you just, you watch, there's like one thing you see and you're like, kind of your mind gets blown about the capability here. Um, if, if you have any advice or experience around you know, early silent films to try if you're looking to dip your toe in the water uh, or, or especially even then like female silent filmmakers to try if you're looking to dip your toe in the water. Not to put you on the spot, but I'd, I'd be curious to see what you say uh, for that. Yeah, I would say step outside the normal slapstick comedies. I feel like when most people think silent era, they think, you know, those Chaplin-esque slapstick comedy, comedy films. I mean, don't get me wrong. Chaplin's wonderful. He's a lot more than just comedy, but I feel like that's what a lot of people kind of, they're watching starts and ends with Chaplin or possibly maybe, you know, the general like a Keaton film or the throne metropolis because it gets talked about so much, but that's usually it. So I'd recommend just checking out other mediums. I mean, other genres inside the medium. Um, it's a lot of really good horror films and good experimental films um, as for specific res- like recommendations um or if it's putting you on the spot like or just kind of like what that looks like so you know so you start with Chaplin and Keaton and uh, you know and then like you know where do you go to even find these resources or where do you go to even kind of like start to you know are there certain lists that you use or certain kind of places you'd go to research this yeah um so for me I would I basically what I did was I watched what labels had available so I kind of used that as my foundation so since Criterion was my first boutique label that I did, collected, I think I basically exhausted their list of silent films pretty quick. Mm-hmm. Um, and then I kind of moved on to other labels. So that's kind of how I chose it because the way I kind of looked at it, if a label you know, chose to distribute a film, it's got some value, it's got some you know, markability to it, right? But I recommend, I like going by filmmakers themselves. Like if you watch a film, and you like, if you like it, look to see who the filmmaker was and then check out some of their other films or film movements. Like German expressionism tends to be a movement that a lot of people who aren't into like silent films kind of gravitate towards. So it's got that very strong aesthetic flair to it, right? That even though there's no sound, it still kind of draws people in mm-hmm. because it's got that, you know, crazy expressionist aesthetic. One silent film that I saw uh, this year that I really liked and it kind of opened my eyes a little bit because some people and even myself, my, my past self, would have assumed that obviously outside of comedy, you're probably not going to get a lot of, I, I maybe silent film could be maybe boring 
And obviously you touched on it there with German expressionism, with the visuals and the aesthetic. It's very, very arresting. And one film that I watched this year, and I'm wondering if if you've seen it, is called The Last Warning. Uh, You've seen that film? That that film just blew my mind. I watched it back in February. So I was still pretty early. Like it's that, that I'm just having my letterbox here beside me because I need to remember what I've seen this year. Um, so like up at that point, I'd seen pr- three pretty much Stone Cold classics. I'd seen Safety Last, which I loved. Sunrise, which it's like, a, it's, pro- it's one of the best films ever made. It's incredible. The General, which was really well made from a du- production point of view. I didn't find it as funny as, um, uh, or I didn't find it as enjoyable as Sherlock Jr., but really impressive from a production point of view and then i watched the last warning which is just completely different the camera just moves around so much something you wouldn't really associate with silent film uh camera just running around jumping around going up and down levels and things like that so would i assume you'd be in the same boat as to say that silent film probably gets a bad rap for potentially being boring when it can have the completely opposite um effect on people yeah, I would definitely agree. And I think part of the issue is people watch YouTube rips of silent films, which are generally, you know, atrocious quality. If it does have music, it doesn't fit, you know, the, you know, the aesthetic of the film. Um, sometimes like, you know, the playback speed is wrong. So it looks super sped up. Right. So I feel like just a presentation of it gives people kind of like this bad, um, you know, these negative feelings towards it. But honestly, um, The Last Warning is a great film. It's Paul Lenny. He's the one who directed it. Yeah. Um, I'm not sure if you guys are familiar with him. He, um, he was actually, he was an expressionist filmmaker. He worked as an art director in a lot of these iconic expressionist films. And he emigrated to the United States because of, you know, the rise of Nazism, along with lots of other his contemporaries. But... Yeah, it was a great film. I, I don't know if I, who released it in Region A. I, I obviously got the Region B, and that was from Eureka, who do a lot of great silent stuff for Region B. Um, they're probably the biggest output of silent films in Europe. Um, they do a lot of early Fritz Long um, and, and later Fritz Long, to be fair. They do it. They cover Fritz Long pretty well. Um, they have early Lubitsch. They have now so they they do a lot of good um output for silent films but uh yeah the last warning it just completely blew my mind when i watched it because um although to, maybe it's kind of cheating because they did make a sound version of the film as well but the sound version is, is considered lost and then it's just a silent version remains but yeah that, that that film just completely blew my mind from a technical aspect just the camera work in it was insane so you, you mentioned earlier there was a company i think it was grapevine that was doing Kickstarters for restoration. Mm -hmm. Um, I'm curious, so we had on a few weeks back, we had on the guys that were formerly with Sinalicious and then Arbelos and they're breaking off, two of the guys are breaking off and starting a new label. Um, And there's one particular release they did called Belladonna of Sadness when they were over at Arbelos. And they said that was a particularly difficult one. And the restoration process for that was $150,000. So I'm curious when you're when these grapevine campaigns coming out, what are they? T- what is that threshold where they're trying to get through the restoration? Do you have any sense of that? If you've been tracking them, I actually don't remember offhand. They're not that crazy because I think they're not um, like pulling these things from these old archives. I think they're finding prints wherever they can, and they're not the they're not like 35 millimeter prints. They're not original negatives. I think they're quite often like at home prints, like eight millimeters, 16 millimeter prints. Um, so they're not as high quality scans as um, 
you know, other labels do and maybe not as extensive in terms of the restoration, but I know restoring films are very expensive, especially like looking at how much they've deteriorated, how much work goes into it. Yeah, well, that, and then the other thing we learned, which I think ties really well into what the era that we're talking about is that most film only has about 100 to 150 year lifespan before it starts to degrade pretty heavily. Um, so that adds even extra element of importance of, I think, collecting and trying to support these labels that are putting out silent films, right? For sure. Um, it's actually interesting that you, me you mentioned that because the time span on a film really depends on how it's stored. Um, and, and let's tell you, awful conditions, it could be upwards like 10 years and then, you know, it starts deteriorating. I believe the first time we heard about film deterioration was in India. It was like 10 years after they started storing these films, stored in hot, humid conditions. They took, they had these films, they contacted Kodak and basically like, hey, our films are starting to deteriorate, you know? The original estimation was like 400 years. Okay. They were supposed to be, you know, preserved, but obviously that's not the case. And then it's even less than 100 years because have you guys heard of, um, it's called vinegar syndrome? Mm -hmm. I know you guys know the label. Do you know how they got their name? It's basically, uh, I've heard the story, but yeah, it's basically like the, the breakdown in the, in the actual, um, you know, physical film itself causes it to basically, I'm sure you'll probably explain it better than me, but yeah, I know, I, I do know what you're talking about. Yeah, so it's kind of fun that that's how they kind of, what they drew the name from. It's called vinegar syndrome. Basically what happens is the film starts deteriorating, breaking down. It, the um, acid in the film creates this vinegar um, odor and that's what the name comes from. But basically it gets um, very thick and sticky and basically the film reel turns into like a brick Jeez. that they can't separate and then it's lost forever. And it's also highly flammable because they use, they used to use nitrate celluloid which is used in gunpowder originally, but um, before they switched to acetate, switched to acetate in the 50s. So they'd have all these issues of these film prints that they have, honestly, like spontaneously combusting. I think the George Eastman collection in the 70s, they lost like 300 films because oh. they're in their vaults because they're just caught on fire randomly. And that's kind of one of the problems with film preservation. Glad to know Quentin Tarantino wasn't lying in Inglorious Bastards then um, yeah. when they when they lit up the, the theater at the end with all that film. Um, so obviously, like time frames we're talking about now, obviously we're 2021. So even if we do get to that 100 year mark, you're losing out on the sort of first two decades of narrative film. Obviously, there was experimental film when it first came out in the late 1800s, but you're missing out pretty much on the first two decades of narrative film if they're not preserved like the earliest film i've watched this year was from 1919 it was the first part of the spiders from fritz long so if someone hadn't saved that it would probably be gone now and lost and you wouldn't be able to watch it which obviously happens to a lot of filmmakers like you like the likes of long or Murnau, the, the early the early guys a lot of their early films you just can't get them they're they're lost and so film preservation just to, even just to keep a hold of a bit of history because that's essentially what film is a small piece of history really so it's important that these companies are supported to to do that to, to make sure that we're preserving not just the artistic merit but essentially a, a little physical piece of history yeah for sure and one of the interesting things about 
you know, how we're finding these silent films is the way they used to distribute them is now, you know, theaters rent out films from the distributors. But back then they'd actually buy the film itself and then they could play it as much as they wanted. So now we have these two different ways in which these films are stored, either by the people who buy them, but also by the studio. So if the studio has a big vault fire, there's still these collectors, there's still these, you know, theaters who still have these prints. Like um, The Passion of Joan of Arc, you know, that's an incredible preservation story. They found it in a asylum. I forget which country it was from. If you guys remember, please jump in. But they found it in an asylum janitor's closet. I remember hearing something. About it. I don't remember the country. The, the the preservation story I know is the mo is is the one from Metropolis, where because it was so they they basically cut a load of footage because it was so long so before they went and go to show it in America, and the original version was unseen until it was found in two thousand and two in an Argentinian museum. How a German film got to an Argentinian museum, I'll let you connect the dots. <laughs> um, but yeah, that's that's the crazy preservation story I know. Like to think that nearly an hour of footage of one of the most epic silent films of the of of all time could have been lost if not for it was found in a in a, in a museum in Argentina um yeah I remember the the janitor's story for Passion of Bark I don't remember the country either but yeah just crazy places that you just pure luck and it's it's great that you get those moments of luck and I suppose who knows in the future maybe more films that have been considered lost can be found yeah. And the one downside, though, is to finding these films in these obscure um, countries is when they, whenever they shoot silent films, they shoot, they use three different cameras and shoot basically using three different cameras to get three different negatives. So you'd have the main camera with the main director's intent, then you have alternate angles. And so basically, at least in the United States, the original print would be distributed in the US, though a secondary take would be, like, say, in the United Kingdom. And then the last print would be all elsewhere in the world. So you might have, you might find a film, but it's going to be composed of completely alternate takes, which creates a really unique, um, you know, challenge on restoring these films. Yeah, that's interesting. Um, yeah, I, my preservation story is not as, as, as old, but I, I'm, my favorite one is about the BBC used to record over all their old negatives uh, for the TV shows. And John Cleese on a whim heard about that and bought the first two seasons of Monty Python back from them before they were about to record over it. Otherwise, all those shows would be lost forever. And you just think about like, you know, there just wasn't the same attitude towards preservation. Um, and it wasn't even that expensive to go buy another reel. They just, you know, they wanted to save a few bucks or a few pounds, I guess. Yeah, it's a lot of early Doctor Who is lost because of that as well, um, because they were just recording over them, which is just insanity when you think about it. But I suppose you don't really... You don't really think in the moment. Obviously, back yeah. in those days, obviously now it's easy because everything's digital. So you, it's very hard to record over or lose something that's digital, especially after it's already aired as somebody's probably torrented it and it's <laughs> available for everyone to pirate anyway within five minutes of it airing. But uh, I suppose you don't really think in the moment. You don't realize you're putting out something important. So it's like, ah, oh, we'll just record over this. It'll be fine. But yeah, it's crazy. Yeah. Well, um, no, that's that's why I, I uh, it's a big deal for, for me personally, uh, Eric and, and Adam and I and, and Zach, who wasn't able to join today. But we we talk about this a lot of times, you know, it's why it's for me like I, I do enjoy collecting anyways. But 
I do feel like there's kind of a mission and a cause behind it. Um, and, you know, we're, we're living in an era where um, I just got in the, the dungeon of Andy Milligan from Severin. And like, it's kind of wild to think that Andy Milligan films are getting uh, this really pristine care and, you know, output into, into Blu-ray. Uh, and, and I hope that conversations like the one here with you today, like this is, you know, I, I'm hoping that this same attention and love is kind of moves like, you know, from the 80s, 70s, 60s, and it kind of keeps getting, you know, uh, down into the, the teens before it's too late, so to speak, because I don't, you know, I don't want to, uh, I, I would hate to look back and all of a sudden realize that we've just lost, you know, to like Adam said, two, three decades of film just because it, there wasn't the interest there um, in collecting, so. I'd like to throw out one more statistic. Um, everybody, I'm sure most people have heard the statistic, like, 75 to 90% of silent films have been lost. Most people know that statistic, but another one that people don't realize is in the talkie era, I think up to the 50s, we've lost about 50% of those. And that's a number I feel like most people don't think about or hear about, but that's a lot. And so that's, you know, going into the era that you're talking about. That's probably more into the, when they started the conveyor belt of films kind of isn't it where they're putting out hundreds and hundreds of films every year and mm-hmm. i suppose ones that weren't deemed good enough at that time were probably not saved but could maybe be could have been reevaluated at later stages like um one of my favorite films is night of the hunter and if someone decided oh, this didn't do very well let's just record over this or let's just throw out this nitrate like the world would have lost what I consider to be probably one of, if not the best film ever made. So um, yeah, I, I'm, the, the amount of lost films is kind of insane from any era, really obviously silent or even into like the early classic Hollywood studio system era. Um, but yeah, I'm hoping that whether it be Criterion or whether it be someone else puts out more silent, I think Criterion are definitely lax. Maybe that's because Flickr Alley and Kino and stuff already put out a lot anyway. Um, but like, I'm just looking at it here and you can, you can um, tell me I'm wrong if I'm wrong, but one film I've really wanted to watch, which is a Russian film earth. Uh, I've heard great things about it. It's mentioned a lot in Mark Cousins' book and, um, story of film and i really want to watch it but from what i can tell it doesn't have a blu-ray release or anything like that it does not it's got a kino release they released on dvd there is a uk box set with um some other of dovjenko's films i think there's three of his films in that box set actually another redditor pointed it out to me they sent me a message telling me about this box set and asking Mm -hmm. if i'd heard of it Mm -hmm. but um yeah, Earth is a fantastic film. The print is pretty rough. I'm not sure what the surviving elements look like, but I think it's really interesting because when most people think about Soviet films, they always jump to that like Soviet montage, like Eisenstein or, you know, um, Vertov, Man with a Movie Camera. They don't think about these other types of Soviet films that were being made that look and feel very different, like Earth. Have to try and track down this box set then because it's a film I've wanted to watch for a long time because I've read so much about it and I'd love if somebody was able to put it out on Blu-ray which just it, it would be phenomenal yeah well uh, Captain Gibb uh, Eric thank you so much for, for making time to, to spread the good word about silent films 
All right, and welcome back. I hope everyone enjoyed that little interview with the captain. Uh, now we're going to be talking about uh, Thomas uh, Paul Thomas Anderson's first film, Heart Eight, also known as Sydney, which is about a professional gambler. Sydney teaches John, played by John C. Riley, the tricks of the trade. John does well until he falls to, with a cocktail waitress named Clementine. What do you guys think? Uh, yeah, I, I liked the film. Um, I like it as a character study more so than anything. I thought the characters were by far the best part. I think the plot was pretty thin, but the the, the characters sort of elevated the film for me. Um, it definitely feels like a first film for an accomplished filmmaker. It's not bad. It's absolutely not a bad film in any way, shape, or form. I think I gave it four stars out of five, which is pretty much my baseline for good films uh, when it comes to my letterbox. So, uh, yeah, not a bad film at all, uh, but characters were definitely the best part of the film for me anyway. It's interesting. They Shoot Pictures has this movie at 7,402, which feels a bit unfair. <laughs> mm. um, I mean, not that They Shoot Pictures places it, but it just it's interesting to me that critics don't rank this higher. Um, maybe bias because of what Anderson did afterwards. Yeah, and I, from my understanding, this isn't his cut of the film either, which has always been a big hot topic point, but this... Oh. They uh, basically they forced him to change the name, and then it was recut. Um, so I'd be curious to see what his original version looked like, and it might be a lot different. Oh yeah, bring up the Snyder cut, <laughs> the, the PTA cut, the PTA cut. Release it now. Uh -huh. No, I want the four and a half hour Snyder cut. I want Snyder to re-edit it. <laughs> <laughs> he just goes um, in and just instead of CGIing mustaches off, he CGIs mustaches on Gwyneth Paltrow. That would be amazing. <laughs> that sounds like the that sounds like the the perfect film for me. Um, yeah, I think Adam, I think I'm with you. Um, it, I think it feels like a first movie. Yeah. And when you look at like we we just by total coincidence we happen to have seen a lot of first movies on here, right? Like we've seen Shoot the Piano Player, and you know, there's a, we we happen to have seen a lot of first movies, and like the thing that I I was kind of reflecting on, like the, I think it's been at least a week since we saw this, maybe two weeks. Yeah, about the two weeks now to see. Yeah. And so, like, you know, in memory, I guess, a little bit now, like, where the emotion is gone, the thing that jumps out to me is, like, the confidence of it. Because, like, I, you know, that's really hard as a first-time film director. The, there is a big difference, a big gap in, in first films from people that go on to become Paul Thomas Anderson or, you know, Truffaut versus people that have, like, a middling kind of film career. Mm. And, and this one, to me, I'm just – it's I can't believe as a first film – Sitting down with Gwyneth Paltrow, John C. Riley, Philip C like Philip Seymour Hoffman was in it, Philip Baker Hall, like uh, Samuel Jackson, and just like having to have like the confidence to direct them into your vision, and he pulls it off. Like I think it's it's great, you know. Uh, yeah, like I definitely wouldn't say anything bad about the direction of the film. Um, it's like the direction is. I think honestly, where it falls down for me most is just um, is the plot, but. Um, to be fair, like the way the characters and the atmosphere kind of do elevate that. I think if this film had crappy characters and wasn't directed as well, it would be it would just be one of those, you know, films you see in a bargain bin in Walmart. You know, it would have been called like, oh, it was just trying to rip off Jackie Brown or something. Yeah, like that. exactly. Like, I think the, the one thing, like, Anderson always does really well with creating atmosphere. I mentioned it earlier in the podcast. If you can create good atmosphere, then it will elevate your film. Um, and 
the same can be said here. Like this film gets called a neo noir, uh, which I can see. Um, it certainly yeah, has. I could go with that. Yeah, it has. I think it it doesn't quite live up to some of the tropes. Like I, I wouldn't necessarily call Gwyneth Paltrow's character a, a femme fatale in a way. I don't think she's really smart enough to be a femme fatale. But uh, no, she's way too impulsive. <laughs> yeah, but at the same time, she still causes the downfall of the main characters, even yeah. if it isn't something. Even if it isn't like a well laid out plan, like Barbara Stanwyck in Double Indemnity. It's not like she's that kind of level of femme fatale. But right. It, like in like in noirs, the downfall of the main characters is is normally down to getting roped into a crime by a woman. That's like one of the most biggest tropes in film noir. Main character gets roped into crime because of woman, <laughs> you know. And then this film kind of does the same thing, but in a in a maybe more modern way, perhaps. Well, I, I think it's interesting that you kind of mentioned that because. She's getting obviously she's getting John C. Riley's character is the one who gets roped into it, and then by association, Hall's character Sydney gets roped into it. Yeah. Um. So it's kind of interesting that because I was going to bring up that I feel like you know the, the thing about using Hall, which I think is always so interesting, is he is a for most of his career he's been a supporting actor, a character actor, mm. and this one he gets the leading role. So you saying that almost feels like John C. Riley really is supposed to be almost like this main character, but we're seeing it from the perspective of, I don't want to say side characters. He, he has the most agency in the film, but it almost feels that way in a way that we're, we're seeing it from the, the almost like the helpers side. Like, Oh, I need, I know this guy. I like the wolf from, um, I was going to say, if you like, we yeah. watch Winston Wolf's perspective going on, these fucking guys, I got to clean up their mess. Uh, right. you like, if I, I don't know if, if I think I read one time, there was an idea for Tarantino to make a Winston Wolf film. Um, but I suppose that gets said about every Tarantino character. It's good about how he needs to make a full film of those. Um, but yeah, I was going to say the same thing. He's like, it's like watching the film from Winston Wolf's perspective, or obviously in this case, watching the guy who has to clean up the mess rather than the guy who's created the mess. Um, that's interesting. There, so th I know there's like, I, I agree with you, Adam. There's not like deep themes here. Like it's relatively, you know, straightforward. And it's, it's more about a character study. But there is a theme of either like loneliness or maybe like, you know, uh, maybe maybe the, the, the stronger theme is like white lies and kind of like how that plays out um, and how far people will go to try to protect those. Uh, you know, so there, there are a couple of themes that are like exploring. Yeah, I think I think the most obvious is the sort of need for connection. Um, you know, when we meet Sydney and John at the opening of the film, Sid, uh, John has said that, you know, his mother's passed away. He's needing to get money so that he can bury her. So from what we can gather, oh, well, we'll, we'll talk about this later in, a, in, a, in, in the uh, discussion. For, for what we know right now, you know, John has lost his mother. It's his only family. He obviously can't go to anyone else for the money. And that's why he gets tied in with Sydney. And obviously we learned very early that Sydney himself is completely disconnected from his kids. He doesn't even know where they live. So they, they almost become a de facto father and son. John becomes connected to Sydney. He looks to him like a father figure and Sydney wants to look after him like he's a son. And obviously Clementine himself, even though you know she's a waitress, she has a normal job. She ends up prostituting herself because she just feels a need for a connection. She's obviously very insecure and feels a need, feels a need to be desired. So I think that want for human connection is something that that's the sort of major theme of the film for me anyway. It's a nice way to sum it up. Yeah, I think that's right. And it, and it guides a lot of the actions of everybody, right? Because even, 
as we as the story unfolds, even Jimmy, Samuel Jackson's character, like even he is connected to all of this and like knows a lot of the backstory and is like there's there's a reason he's there. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's not totally random that he's in these guys' lives. So it's like it does become this weird, like kind of enmeshed family with all the dysfunction and everything that families have. <laughs> Jimmy's like the weird uncle who comes to tell all the family secrets. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. But on the note of Jimmy, I didn't really like his inversion into the plot. I liked him more as a side character. The way they kind of, like, Samuel L. Jackson's awesome. He does Samuel L. Jackson things. You know, this character of Jimmy is like the most Samuel L. Jackson character (laughs) you could write. Um, He fits fits the role perfectly. But I, I feel like he was kind of wedged into the main plot you know it, it just didn't really seem to fit he just kind of came out of nowhere with this bombshell and there wasn't any real lead up to it the only, the only like we'd only seen jimmy very briefly earlier in the film as a friend of john and that's it we just know he's a friend of john he just kind of inserts himself into the main plot in a way that just didn't feel organic to me and it was just it just felt like a way to kind of throw a bombshell right yeah and i and i kind of agree with what you're saying a minute ago, Chris, with the confidence thing, but I do think this might be the area where he may have had like some hesitation um, is with the pacing. Cause I don't necessarily dislike Jimmy becoming sort of a main antagonist sort of idea. I think it can work. And I think all the events, which we'll get into later, I think they work if they're more fleshed out and more developed. I mean, yeah, I, yeah. this isn't necessarily do with as much with plot is just giving me a little bit more of these characters because, I mean, we're going to talk about Paul Thomas Anderson. He's A lot of his films have pretty simple plots, but doesn't mean they're not, like, There Will Be Blood is, insi- is an insanely simple movie that's two and a half hours. Mm-hmm. But because the characters are so interesting and because things keep changing and dynamics keep moving, it keeps you interested in it. Yeah. And I feel like that's what this movie needs as well, is we need more with Jimmy. Yeah. For him to have those moments towards the end and they feel earned. So to speak. When we're talking about this feeling like a first film, that's the thing that jumps out to me is like, there's a lot of sort of convenience built into the writing Mm. that is like, I don't know, I hate to like indicative, I guess, is the word I'm thinking of, of like somebody who's early on in their career and maybe doesn't, you know, have like that. I hate to call it a student film, but like it's the kind of script that somebody who's extremely talented would write as one of their first scripts, right? Yeah. It's basically because because the plot needs it. That's basically his right. reasoning for doing things because the plot needs it, right. rather than letting it sort of develop organically or or have proper build up. It's like okay, well, we need this to happen now, so let's just make it happen now. Right. Almost as if he had this main through line of Sydney, and he got there, and he was like, "Oh, the story needs something else. It needs resolution. It needs resolution, right? And like, how can we kind of do this? And then, which like." descended into or like you know got him thinking about another character coming in from the previous life and then how does he insert into the movie and like you know i can almost see this like playing out on a whiteboard or playing out in like a like a, a writing session or something yeah because yeah, i feel like with sydney it really his downfall you know they it, it goes through this the idea that his sins come back to bite him and it's going to take away what he perceives as his family the the connection he has but it puts it in an external sense. It's, you know, it, we, we put that on Samuel Jackson instead of that being more of a personal thing. More, he has to either deal with this or he's going to lose them himself. Not because Deus Ex Samuel L. Jackson 
knows some stuff that he doesn't want John to know. Right. Um, more of it's it, it'll eat at him and stuff like that. I still think it works, and I still like a lot of what happens. I just, I guess I'm just going back to it needs just more development, or it needs to be more internalized. Yeah, yeah, for sure. I, I, that's what that's what my main issue is. I don't really mind about the direction it took. It was just how it got there. It just didn't feel organic. Yeah. Um, there, there's this interesting thing. I don't know. Um, may, maybe there's more to say about the movie. I want to talk about 1996 before we end this segment. But is there? Do y'all want to talk about the ending or anything first before we get into that? Uh, I don't think we actually have to for this. No, one. I, I don't feel like we have to spoil that. Yeah. No, I think we're good. If you're a listener listening now, don't worry. We're not going to spoil the film. <laughs> um, there. So you know, I, I'm. I was born in '82, so when I was in high school was right around the time this came out. I was just kind of just starting high school, kind of getting into film a little bit, like moving away from the next Disney movie or the next like lethal weapon movie or whatever into like, like something that's a little bit more, well, I shouldn't say lethal weapon. I still love it. How dare you shit on lethal weapon. You heard it here. Now. You heard it here first. Lethal weapon is not patrician apparently. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> that's awesome. Um, uh, it, whatever, into something a little bit more, you know, art housey or whatever. And like, and like, it was a really, I think, historic. Like looking backwards now, it was a super interesting time to be in that kind of uh, influential age and like range of of looking for new films and new directors because you've got movies like Swingers, really strong independent movie, right? You've got movies like Kingpin, um, you've got movies like The Frighteners from Dusk Till Dawn, uh, you've got movies like, uh, I mean. I hate to bring in Jerry Maguire. I think that's an interesting, even though it's a big budget production, it's an interesting one. Um, the English Patient, uh, the, the the retelling of Romeo and Juliet that was very theatrical. Um, Biodome, which is kind of dumb. Happy Gilmore, which set comedy in a new direction. Uh, so like, are, you, my, are you just not going to talk about The Rock? You, no, just getting that. <laughs> <laughs> uh, true auteur. So anyways, you've got all these movies coming out. And they, a lot of them, if you take a look at like kind of what happened, they it was this next generation of filmmakers. Like this was an early film for them, right? And I think, you know, uh, I don't know exactly when Bottle Rocket came out from Wes Anderson, but it was around this time. Around the same time too, yeah. And so you've got this huge wave of filmmakers that were like just getting going. And it was a really interesting time because by the time I started university, was in 2000, a lot of these folks were making their second or third movies. Uh, and I, I, I entered into this time where, like I happened to be in Dallas, which at the time had, it was over 30 independent screens. So you could drive 30 minutes or 40 minutes from where I went to school and find 30 different screens playing independent or foreign or art house movies. That's awesome. And That's I was sad, I was only two. You had two? No, I'm saying I was sad. I was only two during that time. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. So it was a really cool time in history where, like, you know, whether it was the new Takashi Miike film from Japan or, you know, or, which is these like, really absurd, crazy cinema or the new Wes Anderson movie here or, like, you know, the new uh, Michael or Michelle Hanukkah movie. Like, what all these movies were, like, kind of coming into the theater right when I was in university. And, like, it's fun to think back to 1996 when this was all kind of starting, right? Like Kevin Smith was around this time. Like you could just go on and on and on. Like a lot of the people that have become like institutions for that generation, this is when they were getting started. 
So it, is, it was a fun trip down memory lane for me uh, watching this. Yeah, a bottle, bottle rocket was 96 as well. I just looked it up. Um, yeah, yeah. So same year. Um, I suppose probably the biggest director in the world that started in the 90s around this time is Tarantino also. Um, exactly. Who, who again, like Reservoir Dogs is, is good. It's, uh, I don't love it, but it's a good film. And but it has a kind of... Same, same area. Yeah, it has a kind of similar feel to this kind of film as well, where, you know, he's setting out things that he would develop later on in his career. Um, in, in, in Reservoir Dogs, it's not obviously as well-rounded or as polished as later films, which kind of like this, you know, you can see where Anderson was coming from, but it's not as polished. He's not, he hasn't mastered his craft yet. So he's not uh, creating Daniel Plainview or Freddie from the master yet. <laughs> Yeah, exactly. Um, and and that's that's not the shit on the characters he created in this. No, film. I think Sydney. I think Sydney was a great character. Um, oh yeah, it, you know, obviously saying someone like Daniel Plainview might be like um, Daniel Day Lewis is one of his best characters ever. So you know, that's, that's one, one of the best characters. Anyway. Yeah, well, look, Daniel Day Lewis is one of the greatest actors of all time, and you know, he would choose his roles very, uh, you know. He was he was very stringent about how he chose his roles. He would only choose the right film and the right role for him. And I'm gonna, probably going to blaspheme here, but I haven't actually seen There Will Be Blood because you need to change that. <laughs> I just watched I it know. last night again. <laughs> There's no good Blu-ray in Region B, and I'm just waiting and hoping that somebody can put out a Blu-ray for it. That's only the only reason why I haven't watched it because it's not on any streaming here. It's not on like Amazon or anything like that here. And there's just no good. There's just a really crappy Region B that came out like 10 years ago. And I'm just holding out hope somebody releases a good version. So um, how familiar are you guys with PTA? Since you haven't seen There Will Be Blood, which have you seen? Seen this and I've seen The Master, uh, which I love. And I saw Punch Drunk Love about 10 years ago, which... Okay. So no Boogie Nights? I haven't seen Boogie Nights. Boogie Nights is good too. Yeah, I, I was obsessed with him um, around the time a lot of these movies were coming out. Like first first day, first screening in theaters, you know, kind of. So I've probably seen, I don't know how many films he has total. Is it like eight. 11? Oh, it's eight? Yeah, he has um, Part 8, Magnolia, Boogie Nights, There yeah. Will Be Blood, The Master, mm-hmm. Phantom Thread, Punch Drunk Love, Inherent and Inherent Vice. Okay, I guess I've seen five or six of them, anyways. But I haven't. Yeah, there's a few I haven't seen. But I, he's just a, like it, he. He reminds me of Fellini only in this one way of like when he creates a character, he explores every dimension of their personality. He never takes just like one dimension and says they're like the good guy or the bad guy. Like he goes deep into the character, and really you get to see like the whole person. And I think very few directors can and writers can do that to the extent that he can. Well, I think because it, it's so easy to put like, well, this is this is their personality type, and I won't spoil anything for Adam, but there will be blood, but that's what makes Daniel Plainview such a good character, is yeah. he has these soft moments. Yeah. And he's such a horrible person at times, but you, you just get these like little bits of light that come through, and, you're, and you almost start wondering, like, is this who he really is? Is this a facade? And it works that way with Sydney, too, as a character. Like, how, how bad was he at one time, and how much has he softened up, and all that kind of thing. Yeah. So what you're basically trying to say is Paul Thomas Anderson would be really crappy at writing a slasher film. Yeah, awful. Okay, that's <laughs> all I, I need to know. Say, uh, I don't know if you read my review for There Will Be Blood, but it kind of plays off like a horror movie, the way awesome. the movie's set up. Yeah, I've heard it. I, this is kind of weird. I probably, I've probably i listened to more Paul Thomas Anderson's soundtracks 
than I have seen his films. Because, hey, he got that, that yeah, I'm a huge Radiohead fan. They're one of my favorite bands. So I'll like listen to anything that, that Johnny Greenwood puts out. Um, so like the Phantom Thread soundtrack, love it. <laughs> There'll be Blood soundtrack, love it. Haven't seen the films, but the soundtracks are awesome. And I've listened to them a bunch of times. So um, if the soundtrack is any way like the mood of the film, then I, I definitely see it very being not a horror film, but having elements. Mm-hmm. I'm just checking on this now, but doesn't he, hasn't he actually directed a lot of music videos? Yes, he. I, yeah. I don't know if he came out of propaganda films or not. Where they, I don't know if he was part of that movement or not. But yeah, he was. He's big, and I think he still does music videos. I'm pretty yeah. sure he did a Radiohead one a couple of years ago. Yeah, yeah, and I want to say he's done some Madonna. You're not joking. He's he did. Uh, he's big and for Haim. Isn't that a British band? Haim or Haim? Haim. No, they're American. Oh, okay. Anyways, he just did a bunch of their stuff. I always find it funny that like he's such a serious director and he's married to Maya Rudolph. I always find that one one question on uh, on on this idea of like this generation of filmmakers that came out around the the kind of mid nineties late nineties. So a lot of them have become like if you're getting into film like kind of art house film or however you wanted to say that. There's a lot of these directors that become like the gateway directors, right? Like they're the ones you do first, and then you you eventually get into like a, a Teshigahara film. Right. If you're doing the iceberg, yeah, he's like there's a lot of ones at the top of the iceberg, and you eventually get your way down. Yeah. So where do y'all think he ranks in terms of first of all, like a gateway director, but then also like does do his films like last beyond that? Like, can you keep you know? Do you think like he's one of the ones where you kind of enjoy him in the beginning until you discover other filmmakers, or does do his films have a legacy beyond just like being an intro to to, to art house films? If I can talk as an outsider from the perspective that I just haven't seen a lot of his films. From a name recognition point of view, he would be like the tier below the gateway director, so like the tier below the likes of Tarantino and stuff. I think he's a tier below that in terms of name recognition. But I've only ever heard or read positive things about his films. It's very easy for someone to look at the top levels or like a David Fincher or a Coen Brothers or a Tarantino, those gateway directors, and have bad things written about them. I've said bad things about them on our very podcast. Um, Watch the IMDb episode. Yes, exactly. <laughs> that pretty much, that, that covers it all. Um, but you very rarely, I don't recall ever hearing anything bad about Paul Thomas Anderson as a director. Some of his films have gotten mixed reviews, like Inherent Vice is supposed to be fairly iffy, but obviously that's based on a Thomas, Thomas Pynchon novel. So that's always going to be difficult to make a film of a Thomas Pynchon novel. Um, but yeah, he has yeah. more hate towards his personal life than anything else. And I don't even know about his personal life, so I, I'm only going to even talk about just from a filmmaking perspective. Yeah. I, for me, I think he's like the second level down kind of guy, which, to be honest with you, I think unless you're part of a really small movement like Mumblecore or something, if you're an American director, you're always going to be up near the, the tip of the iceberg because obviously Hollywood is the biggest mm. movie machine in the world and has been since film began. So from a just from a from a brand perspective obviously i know india probably makes more films every year but from a brand perspective hollywood and hollywood filmmakers are going to have the most recognition so i think he's going to be like the second level down but i think his films endure the sort of um the negativity or perhaps it's even just because you know these things were because something becomes so popular people just start to hate on it because of that which i think tarantino probably gets that in the neck a lot um uh, Christopher Nolan definitely gets it in the neck a lot mm. for for that kind of stuff, but he just doesn't seem to get that kind of hate. 
wait till Dennis, uh, what's his name, the one doing Dune. He'll get that eventually. Villanueva, whatever. Yeah, his, oh, his, he's his, on, his turn's he's coming up. <laughs> oh, that's, he will be the new Nolan, I guarantee. He will be the new Nolan. He's already coming that way. People roll their eyes. If you, see, if you ever are in a like circle jerk thread or, or movies thread and someone talks about this very small unseen film called Arrival, <laughs> you you will have eye rolls all day. <laughs> oh God! I just don't know at this point in history why anybody would accept a Dune project. I mean, I give credit for just like trying, like go for it. I guess. Like, no, trailer looks, good, you know. I'm not even a Dune. I never read Dune. I'm not. You're probably you probably read Dune, Zach. I, I'd say. I've read the first one. Yeah. Yeah. I've like, read like the 800 novels that came out. Yeah, there's, there's a ton of those. Like, I'm not a Dune guy, but like the trailer looks good. I'll probably see it. Um, I think um, Goranson, that guy, is doing the soundtrack too. Um, uh, the guy who did the he, I, I know him from doing the community soundtrack, but he's obviously done a lot more famous stuff since then. Oh, cool. I just want to know how he's like convincing these studios to give him all this money. Like, he's like, Hey, I want to do Blade Runner, a sequel to that. Remember how it failed in the box office horribly? Well, I want to do that again, and, if, and then it also failed in the box office horribly. Yeah. <laughs> he's uh, like, Huh, what I think a it's shocker. Just, it happened again. <laughs> it's kind of like the Chris Nolan effect, isn't it? The way the way the studios keep giving Chris Nolan hundreds of millions of dollars to make movies because. He threads that line and go back. If you're, if this is your first time ever listening to our podcast, go back and listen to the previous episode, the IMDb deconstruction, because we get into this a lot more. Um, but uh, Christopher Nolan, you know, he's the guy who threads that line between entertainment and trying to be artful. Yeah. And because he's the kind of filmmaker where it's not like a Transformers movie or like a Marvel movie. And I'm not shitting on Marvel movies. I fucking love Marvel. Um, but he's, it's not like one of those. It's something different. And it's the kind of film that will get people into the theaters because people will be like from word of mouth saying, did you see this film? It was the craziest film I'd ever seen because they don't really watch a lot of non-mainstream films. It gets the mainstream audiences in because it's something different to what they're normally used to seeing, but still very entertaining, which I think, but Anueve has also been doing that a lot with his most recent films. Things like Enemy and his earlier stuff obviously wouldn't really fit in that. But the likes of Arrival, which was really entertaining and really well-made sci-fi film. Sicario, very sort of heart-pumping kind of film. You know, he, like, like, like Nolan, he's making artful films for the consumer, for the yeah. mainstream consumer, basically. Speaking of... talking about Sydney, right? <laughs> yeah. yeah um speaking of artful fan films for the masses have you heard of the budget for the lord of the rings tv series just season one it's i don't even insane. want to know it's like what half a bill i think it's 600 million Jeez. good lord that's more than all three of the movies cost i'm pretty sure yeah yeah and there's not getting a theatrical release it's just gonna drop onto prime or whatever you know as like um the show. It's insane. That's insane to me. Um, there's a lot of stuff I could do with $600 million. I, I just need a piece of that. It's all that boys' money. They got all that. Now they, it's like, we can make anything we want now. Seriously. Um, yeah, I, I don't really have anything else to say on Heart 8. I guess we could keep talking about independent versus versus big-budget cinema for a while. But I, I don't have anything else to say on Heart 8. Yeah. It's a simple movie, right? Made well. Yeah, it's fun. Yeah, yeah it's fine. Yeah, it's, it's a solid 4 out of 5. There you go. <laughs> Solid four out of five. Solid seven out of ten by IMDb. I need that on a poster. Like when they re-release Hard Eight, I want that quote on it. Solid four out of five. They live by film, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> 
And now, as always, we're entering into our final segment, Any Other Business, where we just want to just give a shout out to something that we watched recently. It doesn't have to be Criterion, doesn't have to be good, just something we watched and we liked. And we want to uh, give a shout out to, um, I'm going to start, if it's okay with you guys. Um, yeah, go I'm it. going to, I'm just going to give a shout out to a film that's going to be getting some press recently because of its Oscar win. Uh, it's Emerald Fennel's uh, Promising Young Woman, uh, which... If anything, I can if I can only say one nice thing about this film, and I have plenty of nice things to say about it, but I can only say one nice thing about this film is Fennel, for a first-time feature director, does such a great job of controlling tone throughout the film. Um, I don't know if you guys know much about the film or heard about it or anything like that, but uh, essentially, like it's it's a bit of a dark story. Um, essentially, Carrie Grant or not Carrie Grant, <laughs> Carrie Mulligan, uh, very different people. Uh, <laughs> Carrie Mulligan uh, essentially plays this character whose childhood friend, while they were in college, she was sexually assaulted, and as revenge, Carrie Mulligan goes out every weekend, pretends to be drunk, so that a guy will take her home to take advantage of her. And then just completely flips and just, yeah, just goes after the guy for it. Now, for a film, which I suppose maybe you could call it a rape revenge film, it's in no way exploitative at all. It's really beautifully made and everything like that. Um, it's one of those films that, yeah, it just it just manages tone perfectly. It's not a not an exploitative film but at the same time has really great moments of tension. There's moments that almost seem out of a horror film. There's really funny moments. It has a really nice colorful color palette that really juxtaposes the the sort of dark sort of nature of the film. Uh, yeah, I honestly only have, I have mainly nice things to say about it. I think the, the pacing was a little off for the first hour. A lot of it could have been tightened up a bit. It's kind of like a rinse and repeat of the same sort of thing that she gets up to every weekend for the first hour or so. But yeah, once it really kicks in, really well-made film, won the Oscar for Best Original Screenplay, which, yeah, I totally get. Um, and yeah, I'd, I'd recommend it. Um, Promising Young Woman. If you haven't seen it, definitely, definitely watch it. It was one of the, one of the best films I've seen in a, in a while. I know it's dark, but I really like that premise for a movie. I think, in the sense that I think it makes a very compelling story. Right. Oh yeah, for sure. Yeah, and I think like they did a really good job of um, of making it for the modern era too. You know, it's not like it's not like you know thugs went in like like the old rape revenge films always these sort of country bumpkins or thugs or whatever. The guys that she is catching doing this are all your quintessential nice guys. You know, it's it's really it's, she really did a great job of showing that anyone anyone could be capable of doing this. No matter like you know who you like you know no matter what the guy is apparently how nice he is or apparently how you know caring he is anyone could be this person wow. and she does a good job of portraying it and like I said not exploitative in any way if you're triggered by that kind of stuff it doesn't show any assault the the, the main assault that she is avenging is not shown it's only discussed so if you're triggered by that kind of stuff which to be honest with you I am I don't like watching rapes on film that's why i've never watched a rape revenge film like so i spit on your grave i was traumatized when i watched the, the remake of last house on the left and i obviously would never watch the original based on what i've seen in that so I, I don't really like watching that kind of stuff um so if you're triggered by that kind of stuff don't need to worry about that this film doesn't show anything explicit but it's really really great and honestly uh, one thing you can say the film has lots of great moments of levity as well mixed in but yeah it's 
really, really wild ride of a film. I highly recommend it. So just Adam, say... have you seen... Oh, sorry. No, Zach, go for it. Go for it. I was just going to say, uh, I asked you, Adam, real quick. Have you seen the movie Revenge that came out in 2017? I know of it, but I haven't seen it. I think uh, Second Sight or... Yeah, I think Second Sight did a release of it. You, I, if you like, I, I haven't seen this one, so I, I'm only basing it off your comments. You said I would recommend that one. And that one's also directed by a woman as well, which I think helps in these rape revenge movies not get too yeah. gratuitous. But really stylish. Um, it's a little surreal. It has a lot of surrealistic elements to it, but um, it's it's very tasteful in that t- sort of thing when it's talking about the sexual assault and everything. So. Cool. Yeah, I've it's heard somewhere it, I'd so. recommend that. Well, yeah, yeah. Like I said, I think Second Sight did a release of it a, a year or two ago. So, yeah, I'll, I'll look into it. It it helps to have a woman direct these movies, unless that woman is Catherine Brilla. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, basically, that's that's the one woman you don't want directing your uh, your rape revenge movies because she will go overboard. <laughs> Excuse me. Yeah. Um, so just in the theme of love and, and maybe uh, 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 romance from a slightly different direction here. The movie I want to talk about is actually an anthology film um, from Italy in 1962. And it's a three and a half hour movie if you look at it as a complete film. But what it is, it, what it is basically is four segments and they're completely unrelated. So it's very easy to turn them on and off uh, as you watch each segment. They're all about, you know, 45 to 50 minutes long. And it's Vittorio De Sica, Lucino Visconti, Fellini, and then a, a gentleman I haven't heard of, Mario something. And basically what they do is they have four different takes of love in Italy in 1962. So one of them is it plays pretty straight as like a young couple that's getting married and they or they are married, but her workplace doesn't allow uh, married women. They only have single women in the workplace. Um, and so they have to kind of hide their marriage. And he also works there. So they have to kind of hide their, their romance. And there's a, a way that it plays out. This is interesting. But then. And then the Visconti one is very much a Visconti. It's very melodramatic. And it has it's almost like a John Cassavetes movie where this couple is like arguing and fighting a lot. But you can see underneath this really biting way that they're kind of engaged. There's a love there and like a respect there. So it's very kind of it's it's a unique take on like a marriage, like, a, like a, you know, people that are further into the relationship and hate each other, but love each other at the same time and kind of that that balance. Um, but then the, so the other two ones are from both from Fellini and from De Sica are comedies and they're really, really good comedies. Like I can't, I, I really want people to see this movie. So it's called, did I say it? It's called Boccaccio 70. That's the movie name, the, the name of the anthology. Um, and I, we'd have to, I'd have to kind of write it out. It's not an easy intuitive spelling for, for non-Italian speakers, but Boccaccio 70. And the two comedies are amazing. Like, so the whole premise for the Fellini comedy is there's a guy who's a very sort of like teetotaler, conservative, like um, prudish kind of guy. And there's a billboard goes up. Do you all know the name Anita Ekberg by by name? Sounds she, familiar. Here's the woman in the yeah. Oh, yes, yes, yeah. yes. The woman in the fountain with the water like falling down on her. And yeah. she's just incredibly like picturesque kind of like, you know, like view of like a woman, right? Like this curvaceous, like beautiful, like woman. And there's this billboard that goes up in front of his window. He can see the whole thing and it's her in a milk ad and it's the most seductive pose possible for milk. And it just like, it like enrages this guy and he goes to city council to get it taken down and the whole movie he's fighting and it, 
and there's a there's a scene where she becomes comes to life as like a 50 foot woman and like terrorizes this guy and like and he ends up falling for her i mean there's no spoilers it's just a silly like kind of fun story um and so that that comedy and the interplay between him and the billboard and him and the authorities and then him when she comes to life um amazing really funny really well done and then the DeSica movie. So I've only ever seen Bicycle Thieves. I had no idea DeSica was capable of like this kind of comedy. It's so good. It, it's like, it's all about this woman who uh, basically raffles herself off. And, and it's like, there's a carnival and all the men that are in this carnival are like lusting after this woman. It's a young Sophia Loren. And um, she raffles herself off for a night. And so the winner, they, they draw numbers and they each pay to get like a night with her. And she has all these plans she wants for her life. And so she's taking the money and like starting her new life. That's kind of the premise of the movie. But the way that these men are just like, it's like pure id, like if you know, like the Freudian, like, like just pure, like impulse and like raw, like, you know, uh, emotion and lust. And like, they're not hiding anything. And the way they interact with her and the way that she kind of like, they, they, zoom out to the way that people are interacting with her and then zoom into her to see like what she's trying to do with her life and what she's doing with this um, is both kind of touching, but also just really funny. And I, and I want more people to see this movie. I, it's um, I was stunned. I, I just, I had an intention of watching like each segment over the course of four days and I wound up watching it in two settings because the move, the, the individual segments are so good. So that's cool. What, that's uh, cool. what is it streaming on anything or do you have to run it? I, it, so I bought it okay. um, because I'm trying. I'm going through this Fellini one right now. That's like why I watched it, uh, and it's a Kino Lorba release. It's it's not expensive. It's a Kino Lorba. Oh yeah, release. it's Kino. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. And it's um, I I just want more people to see it. Like I think it's the funniest Fellini I've seen, and by far the funniest Desica. But that's not saying much. <laughs> <laughs> I I haven't gotten too far into Fellini, so I may actually try to check that out just so I can you know like you said you can watch it in segments too. So it might be like a good way to ease ease into it a bit yeah it's fun and it's a great like I, I wouldn't say it's like a great representation of what Fellini does like in his other work but like it's fun seeing his comedy side like just a straight comedy he's really really talented at that so awesome nice all right and uh, I, I'll finish up uh, I haven't watched a whole lot where I was out you know driving 7600 miles in 13 days because I'm <laughs> not very intelligent and did that um, I've only had time to watch like about two movies. I watched There Will Be Blood, which we talked about a little bit before. And the other one I watched was um, Hell or High Water, which is a David McKenzie film. But I guess the name that really is more tied to it is Ta uh, Taylor Sheridan, who is the writer of that, uh, Sicario and Wind River. And his new movie, um, Those Who Wish Me Dead, will come out next month, which he is he's went into directing his own stuff. Um, Hell or High Water is probably my favorite of what he's written. Sicario is fantastic. Um, but the thing I really like about Hell or High Water is it's essentially about these two brothers played by Ben Foster, Chris Pine. Uh, ben Foster, always a fantastic actor. And I think this is probably um, Chris Pine's best role. But they are brothers who are robbing banks very early in the morning to um, try to get a certain amount of money, which they go for to, throughout the film, what they're trying to raise that money for. And during this time, a Texas uh, Ranger is played by Jeff Bridges, is trying to figure out what they're doing. Um, so it's a very basic Western story, you know, white hats, black hats sort of idea. Um, but what I really enjoy about Sheridan as a writer 
is, you know, he, he takes those tropes, you know, he's, he's originally from Texas. So he puts a lot of Texas energy into his, his films. It, it, it has that texture of it. And he has such a love and care for one thing that I think is ignored, even in older Westerns, at least beyond archetypes, which is Native American representation, even though this probably has his least of any of his films, every time he puts Native Americans in that, you can tell how much he really cares to give more representation to them, how much that history means to the Southwest, and how ignored they are. Now, Wind River, of course, he goes much more into that. It all takes place as a murder on an Indian reservation. Um, this one is kind of the idea that those who took get eaten eventually. And it's, you know, they even have a quote in the film that kind of talks about, you know, 150 years ago, these people took this land from us. You know, it's from the perspective of a Native American. And now the banks have taken it away from these poor people. At some point, it all comes back to you. And it's the idea that it, suffering is always going to be taken by someone else more powerful. And, you know, it's, it's to them, it's um, it kind of reminded me a lot of this D.B. Cooper quote when he robbed, uh, the, when he was, you know, taking a hostage on a flight where he said, uh, I don't have a grudge against your airline. I just hold a grudge. And that's kind of the motivation um, the brothers have throughout the film that it's just a lot of it's just a grudge that they feel like they've been, you know, that uh, poorness is a disease and they're just trying to kind of get rid of that. It's a, it's a beautiful film. I think it gets overshadowed by Wind River because it, you know, it has a lot of the, you know, a lot more about the Native Americans. And then, of course, Sicario was nominated for Best Picture. It gets a lot of love because of that. And it was kind of planted in between these two. And I really think it's his best work as a writer. You know, Taylor Sheridan's interesting anyway because he was kind of a C-list actor who said, you know what, I'm not very good at this. I'm going to go write. And so far, it's just paid off for him so well. That's good. Cool. Sounds, sounds great. Yeah, it does. Did you see, uh, either one of y'all seen the, the series he created called Yellowstone? I have just ordered it from eBay, so I will be coming in the next few days. I, I remember, just, I never seen it, but I remember, I'm, I've heard of it. Yeah, yeah, it's got Kevin Costner in it. Yeah, it looks interesting, though. And there, there is, like a, again, this Native American representation that looks like it's in the story, so... Yeah, it's supposed to be about like this. These uh, this family owns this land in Yellowstone, and basically, um, the national parks want the land. The Native Americans think they have stake in that land, and I think these oil people want this part of this land too. So it's basically them trying to. It, it, it's going over this who really owns this land, which is kind of representation, I guess, of the U.S. in general. Who really owns this land? Who does it belong to? Can you just can you just imagine like a guy you know I'm just trying to think of anybody who owns a ranch like Tommy Lee Jones has a big ranch right we were talking about that like one of the mm -hmm. somewhere like can you imagine like a the government or a corporation just coming into his big ranch and being like we need half of it like or we need all of it like this isn't your land anymore you'd just be like wait what like, no. yeah yeah it, what are it's you about? <laughs> like, it's not <laughs> anyway. Yeah, and I mean, you, we, I know because me and you, Chris, I know you live in Texas, so I can't remember which tribes are really big out there. I know where I live, it's Cherokee. Yeah. So there's all, you know, I know both of us kind of live around a lot of reservation land as well. So it's a big part of the culture. Yeah, yeah. Texas is, um, it's more like surrounding states. So like o Oklahoma is a huge deal. Asagi, yeah. Yeah, no northern Louisiana is a big deal. Kansas, it's big. Um, but, um, Texas itself, I, I don't know it, there's probably a, a sorted history there, but yeah, we don't, 
it, we don't talk about it as much. There's a reason there's no casinos in Texas. Let me just say it that way. You can go to Nevada, which I, I'll make this a very quick tangent. One of the funniest things when I was in Nevada is gam- I, I didn't really, you know, of course we know that's the state everyone goes and gambles at, but every time I even went to order chips, they would say, hey, touch this screen with this wheel and see if you win anything. Even when I went to computer, I was like, I got to gamble. And they and they won't let you like bypass it either. You have to do it. And I'm like, this is so weird. <laughs> the obsession with gambling in Nevada. We need some hard aid to teach us the ways around that system. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> for sure. I remember, yeah, and I remember when, when Hello High Water came out a few years ago, there was a lot of buzz around. I never got around to watching it, but um, it's, it's, I remember there being a lot of buzz. W- Wind River, am I misremembering, or is that the one with Jeremy Renner and Elizabeth It Olsen? is the one with Jeremy Renner and uh, yeah. Olsen. Heard that one's Bright very news. good as well. Yeah, I haven't seen either of them, and I've heard I've heard good things about both. Uh, I need to, need to get on top of that. Yeah, it's kind of, you know, it might be interesting to hear it from your perspective where you're not like, you know, you haven't has much exposure to the frontier life because it really it's about like the death of the frontier, you mm-hmm. know, the Midwest and the West and the uh, idea that, you know, the quick taking of land from the 19th century and what's left of it sort of thing. So it'd be kind of interesting to hear yours where it's such a there's such Americanized ideas that it would be kind of fascinating to hear. Uh, I'd probably side with the Native Americans because obviously the English came and took our land about 800 years ago. So, and then forced Everyone us hates and... the English. It's fine. Sorry to yeah. English right. listeners. <laughs> <laughs> Screw the Brits. Yeah. That's it. <laughs> yeah. So I'd, I'd probably side with the Native Americans. It's like, I don't know, this is probably going to be, I don't know how obscure this net reference is going to be, um, but it's always like, Zach, you're probably more likely to have played it. Have you played Skyrim? Yes, yes. So it's like in Skyrim, I always side with the Nords because the because <laughs> the the Imperials well, the remind, suck. Yeah, no kidding. <laughs> they they just remind me of the English because they come and try and take the land and stop you worshiping certain deities and stuff. And it just reminds me of of that. So I always side with the Nords because they always just remind me of the Irish. Now the English came over, um, but that's a tangent for another day, I suppose. Next <laughs> time when we watch Michael Collins, that's what we'll talk about. Then. There you go. There you go. <laughs> When we watch Michael, well, eventually we'll end up watching Michael Collins or something, and we can we can go right into Irish history at that point. Isn't isn't my left foot big on that too? I don't know. I haven't seen it to be honest. I, my left foot's about the guy with the, the crippled guy who paints. Is that, so Daniel, I doubt. Is that Daniel Day Lewis? I think yeah, it's else. no, I, no, Daniel Day Lewis. Yeah, I think he won an Oscar for that as well. I think uh, so. Yeah. Oh, I'm thinking of the wrong movie. No, no, no. There's a, there's a movie Daniel Day Lewis does that's big on Irish history. Oh, um, uh, I'm trying to think. I don't know now. Um, I mean, if we want to talk about oh, Native Americans, he's oh, uh, I know the one, uh, the name of the father. There you yeah. go. Yeah, yeah, the name of the father. There we I go. haven't, I haven't seen it, but I, I know of it. Um, but I haven't seen that. Yeah, I'm sure we'll get there. Oh, uh, I suppose Steve, Mc, Steve McQueen's Hunger, which is in the collection. Um, that's about a, a hunger strike from an IRA guy. So uh, a modest proposal. We're- we're working up towards another week of picks here. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that wraps up this week's episode of They Live by Film. If you want to read more of our thoughts, visit theylivebyfilm.com. And you can also follow our letterbox, Reddit, and Instagram accounts from the links in the description. For now, take care.